The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, hey, good morning, Fathom Church. Uh, If I have yet to meet you, my name is Chris Martin. I am the lead pastor here. Uh, So excited to be with you this morning. If you do have a Bible, I hope you do grab it, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be, 1 Corinthians 5. If you don't own a Bible, uh, would you, uh, you can open a phone or a tablet, uh, Google search 1 Corinthians 5. That will bring you to the passage that we're going to be in this morning. We're going to jump right in. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says this, it is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. Welcome to Fathom Church. That's the text that we are in. Aren't you so glad that you uh, tuned in for this one church? Uh, uh, A man is, is having sex with his father's wife. So Easter's over. We are past the resurrection, although every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection, but we are back in our study in first Corinthians. And, and here's what we get as we open up kind of the second movement of this book, first Corinthians chapter five, a man has his father's wife incest. That's what we're going to be talking about. So if you're here for the first time, I just want to, I'm really sorry. Okay. Uh, maybe if you listen, if you're a Christian, maybe, and this is your first time with us, this might be a really important thing for you. If you're not a Christian and you're a guest with us, this is, this is kind of an inside, uh, look today into the church. We're not really talking specifically about people who are not Christians. We're talking about how Christians deal with sin with other Christians. Uh, but honestly, like a passage like this, it's, the reason why we preach through books of the Bible, kind of verse by verse, because I think I, I, I think I would just skip this one. I mean, it's just kind of weird. Uh, so, in order to get into our text today in First Corinthians chapter five, we really do need to do some background work uh, in the Old Testament. So. Keep a finger or a ribbon or a bookmark or whatever there in 1 Corinthians 5. And I want you to flip back in the Old Testament to uh, the book of Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18 is where we're going to spend a little bit of time. Uh, The first five books of the Bible are known as the Torah. The first five books, they are the Torah, the law, the Old Testament, the books of Moses. We find these first five books in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Today, we're going to be in the third book of the Torah of the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, this is this is the book that you stall out in uh, when you're doing your one-year read. You get really pumped in Genesis and Exodus, and you get to Leviticus, and you're like, forget this, I'm done. Uh, so Leviticus 18 is where we're going to be. Look at verse 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord, your 
God. Now, this is uh, a part of the law, the Mosaic law, the law that, that governed the people of Israel, the Israelites, God's people, the Hebrews. And in this Old Testament, in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, there are 613 laws or commandments uh, in, the, in this section. And God has just said to his people, you are not to behave the way that the Egyptians behaved. And that's, that, that, those are the, 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 the people who just had you in slavery, whom I just rescued you from. You're not to be like them, nor are you to behave like the Canaanites. And those, the Canaanites were those who were inhabiting the, the promised land. And, and that was the people that God was about to bring them into this promised land. And he said, don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be like the Canaanites. You're not like to behave like either of these peoples. You are to be different. You're supposed to be set apart. The biblical word that we use for this is holy, holiness. You are to be holy. So God, he lays out these laws for his people to set them apart, to make them different, to make them holy. And Leviticus chapter 18 is where we, we, we get laws about sexual relationships. Uh, so there are moral laws about how God wants his people to live differently from those around them. And, and Leviticus 18 is dealing specifically with uh, sexual morality. So let's look at a few of these. Verse 6. Leviticus 18, 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Verse 7. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother, which doesn't seem to be needed to be said, but they say it. She's your mom. Don't uncover your, your mom's nakedness. That's what he's saying. Okay. Um, she is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Verse eight, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So he talks about your mother and not going to bed with her. It talks about your stepmom, your father's wife, and not going to bed with her. And, and, and so I think we need a little bit of context, okay? To understand this, we need a little bit of context and it makes this, this passage maybe a little less creepy, just a little bit. So remember, in Leviticus, we're talking like almost three millennia ago, like 3,000 years ago. Uh, life expectancy was not what it is today. And, and if a Jewish man were to lose his wife, which would have been a very common occurrence, um, it would have been completely proper and normal for him to take a second wife. Uh, that, that would have been a normal thing. And, and, and for that wife to be significantly younger than he was would have been completely normative because it was all about bearing more sons, expanding the family. So he would have certainly married a woman who was younger than his first wife. And, and marriageable age uh, in this time was about uh, like mid-teens, like 14, 15, 16 years old. So imagine a man, imagine, imagine there's a man, his wife dies, he has some sons, and he's about to remarry. Uh, and, and maybe he has sons who are now kind of getting into their own marriable age. They're in their teens. Uh, dad remarries then this young Israelite, like, like this young girl who's maybe in like the same age bracket as you are, uh, 14, 15, 16 years old. You know this girl. She's from your village. Uh, uh, and then suddenly she moves into your tent and, 
And imagine you're a teenage boy in the throes of puberty, and now your stepmom, your new stepmother, who last week was, was in gym class with you. Like you were in class together and now she moves into your tent and lives with you. So that's what I'm thinking here. Imagine this. Like you've got to just be like, okay, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18. I'm not supposed to sleep with my, with my father's wife. Like that's probably a real temptation for these people. Um, And then if you want to turn over to Leviticus 20, which for me is just one page to the right in my Bible, Leviticus 20 then prescribes the punishment if you do uh, end up sleeping with a a family member or whatever. So the, the punishment associated with this sin is in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11. Look at this. If a man lies with his father's wife, so that's his stepmother, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now this feels a bit extreme. Like if you, if you're honest, like that feels kind of extreme to us. Like we would think it'd be extreme to give capital punishment to somebody who is sexually immoral. That feels like a punishment unfitting to the crime. But for the Hebrew people, this was the norm. This was the standard Capital punishment for this kind of offense was normative for them. And the language around the death penalty in this Old Testament law is very interesting. It's super interesting. Uh, You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to put the verses up. But Deuteronomy chapter 17, here's a prescription for how to do the death penalty in Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Verse seven, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. Now here's the the line. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Uh, We'll see this again later. Uh, look a little further down. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says this. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, so adultery, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, here's the same line. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And you'll find this language all throughout the law of Moses. This is the reason why these sins were taken so seriously, because God had commanded his people to live differently, to live holy, set apart lives. And when they broke those laws, they were breaking commandments directly from God, the Father, from the Lord, from Yahweh, and and bringing evil into this covenant community of Israel. So, so God takes this very seriously. So seriously, in fact, it's death penalty serious. And he tells those people to purge the evil from their midst. And and this is the main point that I want to kind of introduce this morning and then support. And it's this, God takes our holiness very seriously. He takes our holiness very seriously. God wants us to live different from those around us, okay? He wants us to be set apart. This isn't just for Israel. This is for the church. He wants us to be holy, and he takes that very seriously. 
Okay, so that's our time in the Old Testament. He did he he took it very seriously in the Old Testament. He does so in the New. So let's go back then to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and let's dig into our text with that context in mind that holiness matters to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, you got to do a little context even within 1 Corinthians, okay? So remember back to the first sermon in this series. Corinth, the city of Corinth, the Greek province within the Roman Empire was a sexually saturated city, okay? Temple prostitution to the god Aphrodite was rampant. There were 10,000 prostitutes reported in this city. We actually have reports that, that, that say that Corinthian, to call somebody was a, uh, that, that they were a Corinthian, was a term that people would use for, like, for prostitutes, for, for women who, who flaunted themselves and presented themselves for sex. Like, oh, I hear she's a, she's a real Corinthian. Like that was, that was uh, being used as just a term of the day. And yet Paul, Paul says, hey, that whole sleeping with your, your stepmom thing, okay, that's not even cool with the Corinthians. Like, like they, they, they're thinking, man, these, these, these Christians, they're sleeping with their, 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 their step-parents. That's kind of nasty, okay? Like, it's like this. Um, so, so we've been sheltering in place now for like a month and a half or, or however long. I don't know. The time just kind of is rolling off. But I don't know about you, but for me, um, sometimes if I don't remind myself, I will sometimes get going on my day while I'm at home and, and I'll forget to shower. I don't know if maybe this is just a guy thing. Maybe it's just a me thing. I might have my own issues, okay? But, but it happened again this week. As I was writing this sermon, like I just got in my office. I got started in work uh, around 10, maybe 11 in the morning. I'm just kind of pecking away and I caught a whiff of myself. You ever do this? We're just like, oh my gosh. Like, and I, then I look around and I realize I'm the only one there. I was like, dang, like, oh, like that was ripe. When your own odor starts to offend you, like you have crossed the threshold from man to bum, to quote Seinfeld, right? Like you have moved into a whole nother category. Paul is like, hey, the people who are known for their sexual immorality, the Corinthians, like they are offended by what you're doing. Like when that happens, you have crossed the line. And Paul, he's not exaggerating here. Okay, uh, sexual relations like incest with primary or adoptive kin was regarded as a serious infraction in Roman society. We have lots of evidence, extra biblical evidence to point to that. And so this is the first point I want to make this morning, uh, that God, as he takes our holiness very seriously, he does so because, my point, it affects our witness. It affects our witness to those around us. And listen, recently in an attempt to, to not be considered lame or irrelevant or, or prudish or whatever, like conservative or whatever it might be, 
Christians in in evangelical world have have really put on this this front to say like, hey, we're cool, like we're we're relevant, we're not lame, we're just like you. We're like like trying to put off that like make Jesus cool again could have been the mantra that was brought out. This vibe that like to the world, hey, we're not weird, we're Christians, we're just like you. Um, but the reality in the text that we see is that God never intended His people to be just like the world. Okay, he intends us to be different, to be set apart, to be holy. And, and, and hear me, I don't think the world actually wants the church to look just like the rest of the world. I actually think that the world is looking to us for something different. And it hurts our witness when we just try and mirror back that we're cool or relevant or hip or whatever. So a lack of holiness affects our witness. It does. Um, But Paul goes on. Paul goes on in verse three to say, for though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Deliver this man over to Satan. What in the world does that mean? I mean, goodness, that sounds crazy or harsh or, or, or even like unchristian, deliver him over to Satan. I thought we were trying to get people away from Satan. So what does this mean? Okay, what's going on here? Uh, goodness, there are a lot of different options and opinions out there on this passage. Um, so let me just give you what I think is the best interpretation of this verse in context. And of course, I think my interpretation is right, so you should listen to it, but just, just trust me, there's some bad interpretations out there. Here's what I think is the best one uh, right now. Uh, I'm going to break this verse into three parts, and we're going to walk through it, and I hope it helps. First, we're going to talk about delivering this man to Satan. What does that mean? Second, what does it mean for, for him to say for the destruction of his flesh? And then third, what does it mean that, that, on his day, on, that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord? Uh, let's look at these three things. First, when dealing with, with a person who claims to be a Christian. Now, that's, we have to say that right from the gate. This is a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus. They claim to be Christian, but they are living in persistent unrepentant sin, Paul says, deliver them to Satan. Now that means excluding the person from the benefits of the church, no longer treating them like they are, like they are a Christian. Okay. Like Paul expects the church to remove this man from the gathering, from the assembly, from acknowledging, Hey, you're a part of this, of us. You are a Christian. Um, essentially, he says, forbid them from associating with this, these immoral people who are claiming to be Christians, who are soiling the name of Christ. That's what he says. We see this uh, in, in, in three, maybe four, uh, including our passage, four uh, different, different times in this chapter. In verse two, he says, let, let him who has uh, done this be removed from among you. In verse seven, it'll say that you, that you're to cleanse out the old leaven, which we're going to get into what that, 
uh, illustration means. And then in verse 13, uh, Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. We'll get into that next week. But Paul, he's, he's picking up on this Old Testament pattern, purging the evil from among you. Now, he doesn't say, hey, kill him. He doesn't prescribe death like the Old Testament law did, but, but he does say, exile them from the church. Send them back into the world, back into the domain of Satan, where they are actually um, living right now in, in this persistent sin. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to clarify something real quick. Paul is not speaking of a Christian who is struggling with sin. Okay, uh, he is not speaking of one who slipped or messed up or or fell down or who made a mistake. Okay, but 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 rather a a man or a woman who is who is boasting as a Christian. They would say, "I believe in Jesus. I follow Jesus." But I have this ongoing sin in my life, and I am obstinate to correction. I am unrepentant. I am going to do what I am going to do, even though I see and know that this is wrong based upon God's word. Now, we're going to get into how the church disciplines this person next week uh, in next week's sermon, but we just have to say this. Purging is never done lightly, okay? This is only done as a last resort to the one who is unwilling, obstinate, hardened uh, against pursuing a holy life that God calls them to. The, God, uh, the, the, the life that God has called all of us as his followers to live. So we deliver him to Satan. That's, 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 we are to cast him out, to exile, to the word we've used historically is excommunicate him from the church. Now, what does Paul expect to be the result of this expulsion from the church? Well, that's that next phrase. Okay. So phrase number two, the purpose of this purge is for the destruction of his flesh. Now, uh, again, this is a passage that has been misinterpreted as like a literal physical death, like the literal flesh being literally destroyed. I think that's a misinterpretation. Um, uh, Here's what I think Paul's getting at. Um, In the New Testament, the idea of the flesh uh, stands for a certain orientation in life. Uh, The flesh is this sin-bent self characterized by, by self-sufficiency, right? Like, like the wages, the, 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 the self that wages against the things of God. So maybe the best, like a good way to encapsulate that today. It's like, it's like you do you, that's the flesh. You do you, that's the flesh. When really as a Christian, you aren't supposed to do that. You're supposed to live the way that God prescribes. And so I think Paul is most likely referring to the flesh like he does uh, back in Galatians, or or forward, I guess, in Galatians. But either way, in Galatians chapter five, this is what Paul says. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Like, you see, only after destroying the flesh can a person truly be saved? 
In essence, this is what I think Paul is saying here. He's saying, hey, based on the way this guy is claiming to be a Christian and yet is unyielding in his sin, I I don't see any evidence that he's genuinely saved. And therefore, I can't treat him like somebody who is genuinely saved. So, So he hands the man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And then the last phrase that his spirit may be saved. And and that's because there's hope in this whole process in the purge. There is hope handing uh, this man over to Satan is not intended to bring about his death, but to work some sort of positive result in his life. It's like Paul wants to, to, to shock this guy out of this, this, uh, this sinful pattern of his life. And he thinks by ousting him from the church and being left to his sin ultimately will drive the man to change his fleshly orientation, to crucify his flesh. And as one who is no longer inside the church, they start to treat him like an outsider. He's to be evangelized as one would be uh, evangelizing an unbeliever. He's to be pleaded with to turn from his sin and to turn to follow Jesus. Listen, it is better for you to be cast out of the church with hope for your spirit than to be left in your flesh and left in the church and ultimately not be saved. So I'm going to make my second point here. God takes our holiness very seriously because it affects ourselves. It affects us. It affects you. It affects me. It affects us individually. Listen, if you claim to be a Christian and yet have no interest in aligning your life with how God has told you to live differently, set apart holy, then I would question what you mean when you say that you're a Christian. Is there any objective evidence in your life that you have crucified your flesh with its passions and desires? If not, well, I I think Paul's pretty blunt here. I think he's pretty clear. So listen, God takes our holiness very seriously because it affects our witness. It affects ourselves. But then there's one more thing to consider. Look at verses uh, six through eight. This will be the end of our passage for this morning. Verses six through eight. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old, the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he says, your boasting is not good. Now, here's the question. Why would anyone boast in this? Yeah, you know that guy in our church? Like, oh yeah, he sleeps with his stepmom. Like, no, I don't think necessarily they're boasting like that, okay? So like, pause there. I don't know why anybody would boast in that. But 
It's not too difficult in today's culture to imagine that churches boasting in sin is a reality. I mean, goodness, churches boast all the time today in how open and affirming they are to everyone. But listen, there is a fine line, all right? One commentator that I read this week says this. I'll I'll read this quote. The church walks a tight rope between being a welcoming community that accepts confessed sinners and helps the lapsed get back on their feet and being a morally lax community where anything goes. Listen, as we saw in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the church has a proclivity to exalt themselves. This church in Corinth, they're plagued with pride and arrogance and self-admiration. But, but what Paul's saying is this scandalous case of them turning the other way when a heinous sin is going on in their church, it's a confrontation about their own spiritual maturity as a church. Like Paul is essentially saying, quit your boasting and get your house in order. And he uses this illustration of leaven, which is a Old Testament and New Testament metaphor of, of sin. Leaven has always in the Old and New Testament been used as this illustration of sin and, and, and this illustration of how infiltrating unchecked sin can be to the covenant community of God. Like in those days, bread was leavened. Now, yeast leavened, like we can talk about that. I'm, I don't bake, so I'm not quite sure, but this is what I read, okay? Um, in those days, uh, yeast was pretty expensive. Leaven was a little bit easier to handle. So how they would leaven bread, like new lumps of bread, is that they would keep back a portion of the dough from the previous week that had already been leavened. And and what they would do is they would, uh, they would, they would put that away. They would put it in suitable conditions to keep it good and then add that to to a new lump of dough on a new week to then leaven that batch. And that leaven would then spread and leaven that entire batch. And then they'd hold some back for the next week. Now, this was a great way of saving money. It was a great way of, of leavening bread for a long period of time, but it could go horribly wrong if the dough, the leavened dough went bad, if it was not preserved correctly. Like it would then still, like it, if it got bad, if it went moldy or whatever, and they added it to the new dough, it would still leaven that dough, but it would ruin the entire batch. It would cause the whole lump to go bad as well. So you can see why this is a fitting image for the infectious power of sin and evil in a community. And goodness, like we don't have to stretch our imaginations in this cultural moment to understand the need to remove contaminated persons from the larger populace in order to prevent mass contamination. Like we don't have to go too far in our minds to get this. And this is the third reason I think that God takes our holiness very seriously. Yes, it affects our witness. Yes, it affects ourselves, but third, it affects our community. It affects our church as well. This man's sin brings great harm to the church. It's like a toxin that will infect 
and ultimately ruin the entire community unless it's purged, unless it is gotten rid of. Sin that is not dealt with will do the church community great harm. So you see, in this passage, Paul, he's echoing those Old Testament laws, which, which, which take our own holiness very seriously. And he instructs the church to do the same, to take sin in their midst very seriously for the good of the witness, for the good of the individual, but also for the good of the church. Christ's death is supposed to change us, affect change in our moral behavior. We are supposed to live as those who have died and have risen with Christ. And if we are not living that way and have no desire to do so, we ought to be very concerned whether we're genuinely saved or not. Now, next week, we'll get more specifically into what we call church discipline, uh, which is kind of the official biblical way we deal with unrepentant sin in the church. But today, I want to end with a little bit of self-reflection, okay? Um, And and like I said at the intro to the sermon, this is really for Christians. Like, if you're with us and you don't believe in this, God bless you. We love you. We pray that you would give your life to Christ. Um, but, But this is really for those who are already proclaiming to be Christians. So Christian, I'm speaking to you right now. Do you have sin in your life that's hidden? Is there sin that you have yet to repent of. You are unrepentant in that. I hope you've seen in the text, but God takes this very seriously. Our holiness is a huge deal. And what we do with our sin is of the utmost importance. So there's a common illustration uh, for how we deal with our sin. I don't know where it originated, but it's been used all over the place. Um, So let me kind of bring it up to today. Uh, Right now, you are sitting in your living room on your couch or, you know, in your stretchy pants, whatever it might be. But uh, during this this COVID-19 quarantine, everybody's been hitting uh, Netflix, binge watching like crazy. And specifically, Tiger King has been this show of, uh, it's kind of popular right now, which I'm wondering if it would be as popular if we didn't have anything, like if we had anything better to do. Um, but, but Tiger King on Netflix is a documentary about a really messed up big cat, like zoo park property thing, like with tigers and lions and leopards and stuff like that. And listen, I am not commending you to watch this show. I am not commending the show to anyone, okay? It is literally the biggest quarantine waste of time. And I watched it, okay? So there you go. Um, but, but, but this guy uh, has like hundreds of big cats, tigers and such, on this property. And they raise them, they breed them and raise them from cubs, now, in one of the episodes, uh, one of the tigers gets a hold of the arm of one of the women who works there and just like bites it clean off, like rips her whole arm off. Um, that's now that's crazy. That is crazy. But, but, but what's even crazier 
was that everyone on the show was shocked by this incident. Like they were shocked that it actually happened. Because they're saying like we had raised this tiger from a cub and, and like it, it, we had cuddled with it and taken our pictures with it. We had a name, like we named this tiger and they were just shocked that it would ever do that, like bite this woman's arm off. And as I'm watching this, this horrendous excuse for television, uh, as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, you gotta be kidding me. Like, are you serious Uh, You know why that cute little tiger bit her arm off? Here's why. Because he's a tiger. He is an apex predator. It is built in his DNA to kill prey. And listen to me. You put your arm in that cage, that arm is prey. You are the prey. He wants to eat you. Just because you give him a name and cuddle with him when he's a cub does not make him safe. And church, all too often, we do this with sin. We treat sin like a pet. And we let it come into our lives when it it seems small and and, and seemingly uh, uh, not scary, like not dangerous, right? Innocent. And, And what happens is that we try to domesticate that and we try to raise it like a pet. Um, and and maybe you give it a name and maybe you try and manage it. But here's the truth about sin. Just like a tiger cub, it will grow. And it will eventually turn into the predator that it is. And one day it will attack you and it'll take you down. Don't pretend that sin isn't a big deal because it is. Christian, this morning, if you have hidden sin, unrepentant sin in your life, I am pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. You need to take that out of hiding. You need to get that thing out of your closet, drag it into the light, put it to death. You, you have to. Don't let us get to 1 Corinthians 5 where you're cast out. Listen, you can't train your sin. You can't keep it as a pet. You cannot domesticate sin. It will eventually kill you. Listen, it may already be killing you. Today is the day to crucify your flesh. Today is the day to confess and repent. Today is the day to put your sin to death. It's a warning, but it's also hope from the Apostle Paul. Do it before it's too late. Let's pray together. Yeah, Father, I um, what a weird passage. What an important text. I thank you for it. I thank you for the challenge and the encouragement and the warning that it is. And Lord, right now I do, I pray for those who are watching, who are tuning in, who are, who are engaging with this material, who, who proclaim that they are Christians and yet they have hidden unrepentant sin in their lives. Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict their hearts. 
Lord, Lord, call to them, yell at them, scream at them, save them, Lord, from this sin. Inspire their hearts to, to be bold, to drag that thing into the light and to put bullets in its head. Kill the sin before it kills them. Lord, I pray that that happens. Lord, I pray that we'd heed this warning, that it would, that it would be a witness our holiness would be a witness to this world. Our holiness would, would affect change in our lives, ourselves, and that our holiness would ultimately be pure in our community, in our church. For your name's sake, Father, you are the Lord. We submit ourselves to you. So, so Spirit, do your good work in our midst, I pray, in the name of Jesus and by your power. Amen.